0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Agora. I'm Nick
1: Malkoutsis, And I'm Phoebe Fronista. And today, you're joining us for a very special anniversary edition of the podcast, as we dip into the celebrations to mark Greece's bicentennial, the 200 years since Greek revolutionaries launched a war that would, against all odds, free their lands from Ottoman rule and lead to the founding of a new nation-state. And
0: on this momentous occasion, we have a special podcast for you. We're going to set aside our usual discussion about current affairs. So, Phoebe, you won't have to put up with me blathering on about macroeconomic data and the like, (laughs) which I'm sure you're very glad about, probably our listeners as well. Instead, we're going to take time out to look at the historical significance of the Greek Revolution 200 years later. March 1821 and the 25th of March in particular is considered the moment when Greeks decided to band together to free themselves from almost 400 years of Ottoman dominance, setting in motion the events that would lead to the founding of the Greek state several years later.
1: I've enjoyed our research for this episode so much. It is such a great opportunity to fill in the gaps in our knowledge and to take a fresh look at historical events that are being commemorated all across Greece this year. I
0: know you were really getting into it, uh, all these messages about bits and pieces of uh, nuggets of information that you uh, discovered. I I have to admit, though, that as this anniversary grew nearer, I was dreading it a bit, really. Why? Well, I feared that it would become a bit of a festival of kitsch and full of empty national slogans rather than an attempt to improve our understanding of what happened. Um, now, assessing it, I have to say, although there's been a sizable dose of tackiness and sickly sentimentality, there've also been quite a few worthwhile events that have added to our appreciation of events two centuries ago, and perhaps in a funny way, maybe uh, 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 COVID-19 spared us uh, of the worst because of social distancing, that a lot
1: of the more uh, (laughs) kitschy stuff was uh, (laughs) cancelled. I personally, I'm really enjoying the so-called live Twitter feed that the Ekaterini Laskaridis Foundation has been running in both Greek and English since the beginning of the year. The handle is at news1821 for whoever wants to check it out. And, uh, for example, yesterday, which was March 22nd, as we record, uh, the Greeks were laying siege to the city of Patra and getting sprayed by cannon fire from the Ottomans holed up in the castle, while the famous priest, Paleon Patron Germanos, is raising a red flag with a black cross on it and blessing the revolutionary fighters. Meanwhile, over in Istanbul... Some Christians are being executed in retaliation for a different uprising. Greek again in Moldova.
0: Well, it's a reminder. It's a really exciting story. And, uh, I like what they're doing. I didn't know about this, uh, Twitter feed uh, at all. And I've seen similar ones, for instance, about, uh, the second world war and so mm-hmm. on. You know, they do a day by day account. So yeah, it's a, it's a great idea. Um, And there's lots of other things being going on, online events and so on. And we've followed a few of those. Mm -hmm. I I dipped back into a book that I've had uh, for a while. It's uh, by David Brewer. Here it is. It's called The Greek War of Independence, The Struggle for Freedom from Ottoman... Oppression. And it's, uh, it's a good book for anyone who's sort of wants to dive into the subject and, you know, doesn't really know a lot about it. Described as fresh and compelling by the Wall Street Journal, if you want to uh, take their word for it. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good primer, really, on uh, what happened. Um,
1: but we're going to find out more about that. Hopefully, the Agora podcast will also be contributing to the constructive part of the discussion with our first guest, who is Professor Psykis Gekas from York University in Canada, and who hails from the northern town of Veria.
0: Sakis is the Hellenic Heritage Foundation Chair of Modern Greek History at his university, and he joined us for an what I would call an illuminating discussion about 1821, its significance, and even the challenges of
1: educating people about the Greek Revolution. Now, a disclaimer before we start. The aim of our discussion with Sakis is not to go into historical detail of what happened 200 years ago, but to focus on the broader themes. However, we do have a solution for the history buffs out there who want to know more. Sakis is involved in a different podcast series with the Hellenic Heritage Foundation in Canada, and it's called The Idea of Greece. And it gets into the history of the Greek Revolution with the help of some really amazing guests and great storytelling. From the brutality of the battles to the female fighters, it's great.
0: It really is. And there's some fantastic insight on the podcast. And I would highly recommend it to anyone who has even a passing interest in this period of history or even no knowledge of it at all.
1: And in the second half of the show... We'll be trying to move the discussion forward by examining the more contemporary legacy of 1821, but also where Greece positions itself 200 years later and what lies ahead.
0: I'll be speaking to Nikos Konstadaras, a columnist at Kathimerini Newspaper, about what's shaped Greece since it gained its independence and what
1: direction we're heading in. Before we address the future, though, let's start with the past and hear from Professor Gekas on what the Greek Revolution was all about. Psyche, it is so great to have you here. Uh, And and shout out to our Brexit guest, Nikos Kuderis, my beloved friend who introduced us to you.
2: Thank you very much, and thank you to Nikos as well.
1: (laughs) So, obviously, the Greek War of Independence was, and continues to be, of major historical significance to Greeks, because it led to the establishment of the Greek state. But what was its relevance beyond Greece at the time, and why does it matter now, 200 years later, in a global historical context?
2: Well, the Greek Revolution was a major event at the time, first of all because it mobilized different people for different reasons in many parts of the world, especially in Europe and the United States. So it mobilized, let's say, liberals who were looking uh, for a cause and had a cause, fighters against the Muslim autocracy, the Ottoman Empire, uh, romantics who were influenced by classical ideas. So it spreads very quickly around the world and it mobilizes people. It is also important because it succeeded at the time when other liberal uh, revolutions in the Mediterranean, uh, in Napoli, in Spain, uh, and in Portugal uh, failed, so it succeeded militarily first. So it establishes a secure region, let's say, uh, to defend from the Ottoman armies. But it also um, provided uh, the, the government, uh, the provisional government, uh, had to uh, the opportunity to and the time to gain support, uh, not of one but eventually three. Uh, major powers. Uh, secondly, beyond the event of the revolution and its outcome, let's say uh, Greece and its revolution represents uh, many things. It, it represents um, a modern nation-building uh, process uh, that uh, drew on the Enlightenment, but uh, not only. It reflects the rise of ethnicity as very important, associated with religion, uh, of course. And now, this is the most important question, I think. The Greek Revolution matters as also a democratic event. You know, its a, its democratic legacy is that still uh, matters. Yeah, because at the time of pandemic, uh, you know, occasionally and many countries, the curtailment of democratic liberties, it it does have, so to speak, the absolute liberal message. You know, that only with fighting against a, a formidable, you know, seemingly at least empire, um, you can, uh, with, and with external support, of course, you can achieve uh, independence. So it also signifies the transition, let's say, from people to a nation. Uh, but nation, of course, is a political community uh, and the creation of a new form of, of state, let's say, compared to what existed before.
0: Psyches, um, again, looking at the, the broader global context, uh, would you say that the Greek Revolution was a trailblazing? event? Or was it uh, in the the sense of, you know, the the Greek revolutionaries being pioneers? Or was it more of a consequence of broader international trends and developments, such as the Enlightenment, which you mentioned, changing commerce, and perhaps the crumbling of some early modern uh, empires?
2: Yes, uh, it was not so much a trailblazing uh, global event. It does sync uh, with other revolutions at the time. So that is what has attracted the interest of historians uh, recently that um, revolutions in South America, for example, the Mediterranean, uh, parts of the Mediterranean that I mentioned are also in turmoil. And there is this liberal moment that, you know, the Greek revolution is, is part of, which does draw on the Enlightenment, but not broadly. I mean, the Enlightenment is also many things, you know, it has many strands. It does draw on a particular radical uh, political uh, tradition and legacy of the Enlightenment. Uh, commerce is hugely important and uh associated with uh, education, uh let's say it's interesting that uh one of the, the so called triangle of um educational uh growth in the area of Eastern Aegean, Asia Minor, Kidoneso Ivalik, um Zmirna and Hios uh, were also the places where uh some of the ideas of the enlightenment education but also the power of commerce emerged. Now this is um you mentioned also the crumbling uh, mo- early modern empires. I think there's some of that too, but uh, we need f- to think that the Greek revolution comes at the time uh, following immediately following the outcome of the Napoleonic Wars. so uh, this is also at the moment when major European powers and the Ottomans in sync with them, they consolidate their power to prevent another major war. Uh, that ripped Europe apart uh, happens. Uh, so, the the Greek Revolution has to face this this challenge uh, against uh, the um, uh, the new post Napoleonic order uh, that uh, is is dominant in Europe at the time since 1815 uh, onwards. There's also the the challenge of regional governors such as Ali Pasha to the Ottoman Empire. That for those who don't know, this regional governor that becomes all too powerful for the Sultan who decides to send an army and take him out. And, of course, this provides a diversion for uh, Greeks further south in the Peloponnese to, to rebel with uh, against much uh, weaker Ottoman forces. But for Greeks, the turning point seems to be the, the ways in which they developed a new political identity. And this is certainly an international, uh, broader uh, trend uh, at the time.
0: Would you classify Greece's revolution as a, nationalist uprising. And and by this, I'm trying to get at whether it was clear what the rebels, the revolutionaries were fighting for in 1821, at the start, at least, of the uh, uh, War of Independence, which lasted for around eight years. Was there, for instance, a fully formed national identity when the war began? Or is it something that evolved during and perhaps as a result of the uprising?
2: Well, I think clearly uh, from what uh, I've been reading and what uh, historians are discussing the latter, uh, the idea of having a fully formed national identity, I don't think if it exists anywhere really. You know, national identity is a process in, in itself. So um, what happens in Greece in 1821 during and following the revolution was uh, the formation of a national identity with nation as a political community. You know, so it is uh, a nationalist uprising, but it's important to think about how people understood the nation at the time. Uh, and as I said earlier, it is a trans- transformation, the transition from a people uh, with various you know, regional to start to begin with identities into a national uh, identity with uh, people who belong to the same political community. So, there is only gradually a sense of common purpose, uh, which is, um, you know, determined by the war itself. You know, increasingly this becomes a war of uh, survival against uh, the Ottoman and after 1824, 25 Egyptian Ottoman forces. So, this commonality definitely underlines, for example, the the constitutions of the times, which define who is a Greek. And a Greek is a Christian. Uh, there's no of the Eastern Orthodox uh, religion, but eventually this becomes much broader to include all Christians. But also uh, the um, uh, the question about what the rebels were fighting for uh, is also very crucial because they seem to be fighting for different things, depending on the region they came from, on the class, so to speak, or also the hierarchy, uh, the, the of the position they occupied in social hierarchy, rather not to use the word class class. Um, um, for uh, for something different than it means at the time. So it depends also where which groups they belong. And it seems that many different groups are trying to consolidate the power they had before the revolution uh, and clash occasionally with those who acquire power during the revolution. That seems to be uh, what also leads to the notorious civil wars you know, of 1823-24. And
0: if we're trying to fit these events into the sort of broader emergence of what we understand as modern nationalism around the world uh, in the 18th and 19th century. Where does the Greek revolution fit in this picture?
2: I think it fits uh, in uh, the sense that it pre- presents a break because, it's as I said earlier, it is a very successful uh, revolution. It does lead to an independent... We can discuss the limits of this independence later, but it is an independent state. So the construction of nations, however, is never a linear process. You know, not that can, let's say, easily replicated from case to case. I mean, this, this does not mean that people at the time did not try. Rigas Fereus, you know, the, one of the most famous, let's say, the protagonist of pre-Revolution era uh, radicalism, was very influenced by the ideas of the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his project was of creating a Republican multi-ethnic state in the Balkans. That was probably far too radical. For its time, and even for the revolution itself, you know, assuming that Rigas had lived to see the revolution, because he was uh, killed in 1797, you know, his ideas may not have been very popular in the areas that became Greece after the revolution, because of the very clear orientation of, of Greeks as a as a Christian nation, you know, as as a political community, but of Christians primarily or exclusively. So, it does fit into the overall emergence of modern uh, nationalism, civic and ethnic, but uh, only um, uh, because of uh, the previous, um, let's say, achievements, intellectual and state formation of the French Revolution. And, Sakis, just to pick up on something
0: you, you mentioned a couple of times with regards to the role of uh, religion, could you um, go into a little bit more detail about how, what, what? role religion played, both in uniting Greeks against the Ottomans, but also perhaps in attracting international support for the Greek cause at the time?
2: Yes, I think that's very important. There's this, um, the, you know, religion as a, a sentiment, of course, it matters a lot of people's identity. This is what they associate mostly with, beyond language, because Greece or areas of Greece that became independent are you know, quite multilingual. You know, there is Greek or Romaic, as people call it at the time. So very simplified Greek. Uh, there's um, Albanian, again, and very simplified, and Turkish. Uh, so there's, and there's, and there's the Italian understanding and, you know, uh, spoken language for those who travel, who trade. So there is, and the intellectuals, of course, who have a much more, um, you know, they're much more multilingual and know how to write as well. So religion plays a role, but what's more interesting, I think, in, beyond this sort of understanding and identification of people with religion, is the role of the church, mm-hmm. of the upper clergy, of the patriarch, you know, in its center in Constantinople, that, um, obviously, uh, it denounces the revolution as they were against all revolutions, you know, whether scientific or political, uh, or social. But then there's the lower, um, so to speak, clergy on the ground, uh, people that even a few bishops who decide, you know, to cross the Rubicon, so to speak, you know, to cross the line and defy the the central authority, the central ecclesiastical authorities, uh, denouncing of the revolution. So that's where things get interesting because Greece, of course, very early on, the revolutionary government, in fact, has to create an independent. Um, religious uh, or church authority. So that's why you have Mavrocordatos, for instance, one of the main um, protagonists, political uh, protagonists, a foreigner on the ground because he's a, he's from Constantinople. He's not from the area that became independent in Greece. He appoints a bishop, and that is, I think, a very crucial step because he says, "Look, from now on, this is the the role of the government to appoint." Uh, also, ecclesiastical leaders, not of the patriarch anymore, so that's I think it's quite an important step in state formation as well, and of course, it creates uh an impact on how people understand um uh, the relationship between uh, state and uh the church.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the role of uh of the Philhellenes uh in the way that they reconnected Greeks with their ancient past? Um, was it, was it important or were people in Greece at the time in tune and appreciative of the legacy of people like Plato or Sophocles? Uh, mm-hmm. did the, did in fact the Greeks use this ancient legacy in order to convince other European and Americans to support their cause?
2: They certainly did. Yes. Uh, let me also, um, connect to the previous, uh, question about how religion uh, attracted, helped Greeks attract international support mm-hmm. for the Greek cause uh, because, you know, it played a great role, you know, religion in that respect too. So Greeks unite under the cross and the fact that they say and do wage a war of religious independence from the beginning, I mean, it is this identity that attracts international sympathy and political support. However, the religious identity in fighting, um, I mean, it should not be confused with religious oppression during the revolution. So, you know, Greeks and Turks, as people call them at the time, meaning Christians and Muslims, they coexist, you know, and they plan things together um, for, you know, the, the Peloponnese, at least. We know in 1808, they are considering offering the Peloponnese to Napoleon. This is a group of Christian and Muslim uh, notables. Hmm. But once there is this, um, you know, intellectual uh, movement of Philhellenism that starts from classicists in the mid-18th, Late 18th century, and increasingly people travel both to Italy and to parts of the Ottoman Empire that were formerly parts of the ancient Greek world. So this is what creates an intellectual uh, tradition and makes Greece uh, known at the time. Not so much Greeks, because there, there are these, you know, very fleeting um, writings about you know what people in Greece or Christians or Turks are like and Jews where uh, Jews live. In the Ottoman Empire, but really, what uh, the Philistins uh, do is to promote this idea that Greeks deserve a independent state, uh, practically because of their um, of their, uh, of, their anci- of their ancient past. So Greeks are also very quick, some Greeks at least, uh, to pick up on that, and it is actually one of the main arguments why the rest of the world needs to bother and be concerned and support uh, the Greek struggle as the war goes on. But uh, Philhellenes do much more than that. So many believe in the need to liberate Greece. So they go to fight. You know, in 1822 already, you have a few hundreds of uh, foreign, mostly European um, fighters. You know, people who fought in the Napoleonic Wars were experienced. But Philhellenes in their countries, they believe this is a country that is needs to be independent, a people that needs deserves its own uh, state. They draw on classical Athens mostly and the glory associated. Uh, sometimes with, um, you know, major events in ancient Greek history, such as the Persian Wars. So Leonidas, you know, Leonidas comes up quite often in rhetoric. Um, So I think Greeks become appreciative of the ancient, um, of the legacy of the ancient past increasingly during the revolution, you know, as they see that this is actually one of the stronger uh, arguments they have.
0: Now, Psychis, uh, we've switched on f- off the cameras, but if we had them on, you'd probably see Phoebe rolling her eyes at my next uh, question, thinking, "Oh, here he-, here he goes with questions about the economy again. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> no, <that's fine. laughs> please do hear me through. Um, of course, as you know, and sadly, one of the prisms through which many people around the world have come to know Greece in recent years was the economic crisis a crisis that was partly the result of money Greece owed to foreign creditors. Now, debt is also at the heart of the independence story because the fledgling Greek state and the revolutionaries building it received two large loans from financiers in the UK. In fact, often during the recent crisis, uh, the the debt crisis, as it's also known uh, the previous decade, commentators, either in Greece or abroad, pointed to the uh, revolutionary loans as signs of Greece's so-called perpetual inability to pay its own way, or alternatively, how Greece has always been under the thumb of creditors abroad. I'd be really interested to hear what your take is on these loans. How important were they, for instance, and to what extent were they a burden for Greece as it
2: uh, gained its independence. Yes, I think this is a very um, entangled uh, question with uh, you know many issues of that relate to the present. I'll start from the past. I'll say that at the time, uh, external financial help is absolutely important to continue fighting the war. Uh, this is a these are armies both on land and at sea. That need to be paid sometimes in advance to fight. Now that's not because you know the Greek revolutionaries are mercenaries; uh, they are not, but they need to survive and make sure that you know they have something to live on. So there is the need. Plus, there is also the expenses, you know, to fight the war: um, ammunition, you know, guns, uh, ships uh, that are used uh, that are bought by the first revolutionary loans. So. There's no doubt that uh, Greece had to borrow and it was not the provisional government of the revolution was not the only one to to borrow money. This is what revolutionary governments do in South America, for example, and they borrow much more. So financiers in London at the time, they are investors, so to speak, uh, which generates a momentum for the Greek revolution because they put pressure on their government to support the project of Greek independence. Otherwise, they will not get Their money back. Now, of course, they withhold a lot of, a large amount of the loans as security for uh, lending the provisional government. And in fact, you know, the role of Byron, uh, Lord Byron, is very important in that. But uh, let's not uh, distract from the issue of debt. I think sometimes because of the 2010 onwards crisis, uh, the issue of debt as a sort of perennial issue in Greek history has been. Exaggerated. I mean, all countries have debt. The problem is what you use the money as a state uh, that you borrow on for, and whether you are able to keep refinancing this debt. You know, it's of obviously creates relations of dependence, uh, but then every country is dependent in this particular way. And, and let me give you another example from the past. Again, you know, the the first revolution loans are quite large, but the real big ones are the ones that come with the appointment of King Otto. Mm-hmm. Uh, 60 million French francs. And most of this money goes to paying his, you know, Bavarian soldiers, a few thousands of soldiers, as his personal guard and the army of the state, right? So a lot of money is spent on that. Plus there's no really, no strict accountability uh, in budgets. But overall, you know, since we are talking about the overall role of debt in Greek history, in the first hundred years of its state, uh, Greece... Between, let's say, eighteen thirties and nineteen thirties, was spending between 11%, 12 and twenty seven percent of its total expenses on defense. Wow. this is this is a huge amount to be spending compared, let's say, to health or education yeah. or other um, uh, other items. So, this is this is really what has burdened the Greek state uh, over time. Plus, I think there is also more recently the association of the over borrowing. Uh, of the 80s um, uh, and especially the 2000s with the 2010 economic rise. so i wouldn't I wouldn't draw a direct line back to the revolutionary loans. you know I think if it's a line it's a very crooked sure, line sure. it's not a straight line at all absolutely uh, so I, I can see the temptation there that you know there's like a perpetual inability to pay but actually Greece has consolidated its finances both during the 1890s, after the sort of harsh uh, default and the International Financial Commission, and in 2015-2018. So it's not, let's say, a perpetual inability uh, to pay its own way, uh, as you know, very few countries do, actually. As I said, it, it's important how do you use the money a country borrows and whether it's actually able to, to keep repaying it at a fairly low uh, rate. Well, I'm, I'm very glad you put that one to rest.
0: I won't be asking any more questions, uh, Phoebe, about the economics.
1: (laughs) Oh, you'll find a way. (laughs) So let's go to education. Um, How has the way that the history of the War of Independence is taught uh, changed in Greek schools? Or has it changed? Do Greeks have a more nuanced understanding? of what happened two centuries ago than perhaps they did until uh, recently, you know, just with like the heroes and that's it.
2: Hmm. Um, I'm inclined to say yes, uh, but I'm not informed enough, unfortunately, to know about how the revolution is taught at schools in Greece. I certainly hope, and I believe it has moved on and improved since the 90s, you know, when even at high school we were expected to memorize uh, You know, hundreds of pages in a book that included the period of the revolution. I mean, so yes, engagement with sources, whether, you know, primary sources, what people wrote at the time of the event or historians' works, uh, what we call secondary sources is a very welcome change. For a long time, though, I think the whole idea or, you know, the concept of teaching uh, the Greek revolution as well as other uh, chapters in Greek history was about making people from a very young age feel very proud about Mm -hmm. being Greek. You know, which, uh, you know, trumped, uh, or not to use that word, <laughs> uh, <laughs> under, undermined, uh, let's say everything else. So, including knowing about how Greeks as a nation and the Greek state came to be. And I know, you know, there's certain age where Greeks, where children, especially, or people more broadly need, so to speak, some myths. But actually, there is a, there is a way, there's different ways of teaching about myths, not myths as sort of false stories, but as exaggerated, um, uh, events and uh, and stories. So I think there is this um, uh, shift. Uh, but I, I would also say if if you include, for instance, the history of uh, the War of Independence and the Revolution, even at university, you know, I was fortunate enough in the late 90s to be taught uh, on the history of the revolution at the history department in Corfu, the Union University. But that was not the case in every history department in the country. And I think there was something you know, missing there, you know, can you, can you imagine many, many schools and many departments of history in the States, uh, not teaching the American Revolution? It's hardly okay. the mm-hmm. case. Uh, or in France, you know, can you imagine departments of uh, history in France not teaching about the French Revolution? So I think there was something that historians as well missed that uh, I think they're catching up very, very quickly, uh, now in the way the history of revolution is taught and also projected in the public more broadly. Because really, this is a digital age of of approaching, not just teaching, approaching the history of the revolution.
1: Yeah, you know, I actually saw a few episodes of this documentary series um, broadcast here in Greece on Cosmote TV's History Channel, and this might be a little off subject, but you know, it was it was based on the work of historian Thanos Veremis, and they explored in each episode how and to what extent. Uh, Greeks actually had a common identity during the 400 years of Ottoman occupation. And it was really interesting and history that I knew nothing about. You know, it was always always very simplified of, oh, yeah, well, it's just 400 years of slavery. And wasn't quite that way. So to circle back to education, where do you think that there is room for improvement in teaching the subject? Because for such an exciting story many of the documentaries and books and movies that they all tend to be incredibly dry or dull or 100 years old
2: or oh, too reverential if i may mm-hmm. yeah yes uh well the question about how did greeks uh, you know people of the eastern orthodox religion specifically you know lived during the ottoman empire is a slightly different uh, theme over 400 years at mm-hmm. least you know is it's quite different also from why did the Greek revolution happen? I think it's important to differentiate between the two. Uh, There's also, you know, this documentary um, uh, approach. Uh, I remember back in 2008, I think it was, when uh, Professor Veremis participated in another documentary, you know, the Sky Mm. uh, TV one. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I remember that. Great Greeks, Greeks. yes, and uh, the revolution of 1821. And he... And he also talked about he and you know and the narrator. uh, They talked about you know the massacres of uh, Muslims and Jews in Tripolita in September 1821, and you know that created quite a stir and a sort of um, oh you know we we are talking about this for the first time. And of course historians knew about this, but the general public apparently Mm, did not. mm. So I think you know things have improved quite significantly since then. I don't think. I don't think it, it, you know, shakes anyone's mind to, uh, talk about, you know, massacres both by Greeks and by Ottoman, you know, Turkish Muslim forces in, during the revolution. It's a very violent war, like, you know, all wars, all wars are, and, you know, all revolutions are in, in fact. So this is a, a welcome change, I think, that there is, you know, there's understanding much more nuanced, if you like, about what happens during such a, um, such a critical, uh, period. But I think the 200 years anniversary clearly, clearly this year, this, this week uh, provides the opportunity to think about more, uh, to think more critically about, you know, the historical experience of one's, you know, community, of one's, uh, people more broadly. And I think that's, uh, that's what's, was uh, missing for a very long uh, time. Obviously, the web, you know, that's what I'm referring to, the digital age, so to speak, of approaching the Greek revolution. It provides, you know, endless seemingly opportunities to engage with the events of the revolution in a much more relatable way. You know, how to teach or how to approach. I prefer the word approach because it kind of, you know, it's more interactive Mm -hmm. in a way. And um, so let me just mention a few of the ways in which over the themes Let's say that could make uh, the history of the revolution more relatable. War and destruction during the times of war, uh, the plight of refugees, uh, trafficking of slaves, especially women and children, humanitarian intervention, uh, relations between church, state, and the state. Um, these are these are issues, you know, that many of us would relate, whether historians are not interested in the revolution or not, would we'll probably relate to, you know, because they are ongoing uh, issues in many in many societies uh, around the world. Uh, Sakis,
0: on that point exactly, and to conclude our discussion, you've been involved in the Idea of Greece podcast with the Hellenic Heritage Foundation or HHF in uh, Canada. First of all, uh, Phoebe and I have been listening to it uh, uh, religiously, and we've we we think it's a so wonderful work, and we recommend it to any, anyone listening to this podcast who wants to get into a bit more of the historical detail and get insight from some uh, wonderful uh, and knowledgeable guests you had. We really do thank you very much. It. Yeah. It's, it's really, um,
2: uh, it's really a compliment coming from you.
0: <laughs> now, as an exercise in public history, how did you find it? Uh, for instance, what were some of the challenges you had to overcome, either in terms of addressing Set ideas, for instance, within the Greek diaspora or uh, kindling the interest of a younger generation that may feel completely detached from this part of history.
2: Um, yes, there were some challenges. I mean, there were some of the technical challenges that, uh, everyone faces, you know, during the, the pandemic and some are more versed than others in the technical uh, aspects of uh, recording. <laughs> we know um, all about those. Yes. <laughs> of recording online. You probably know, <clears throat> excuse me, all too well about those. But it is, as you said, an exercise in public history. And I think that was uh, very intriguing from the start. I must say we came up uh, in the history committee, as it's called, um, of the Hellenic Heritage Foundation here in Toronto. We came up with the idea of a podcast about the revolution before the pandemic. So we were already thinking about how to approach, as you say, a younger generation um, that may feel detached from its part of history or didn't really know about it uh, or had heard about, but not beyond the sort of, you know, there is this event um, back in 1821, and now there's a parade for several years in, you know, in parts of North America where many Greeks live. But I think eventually it grows uh, and uh, has an audience that uh, ties a target beyond the uh, the Greek diaspora, hopefully. Um, we did try to uh, take things from the start, so, but we explicitly chose a thematic as well as chronological approach because I was very uh, clear in when with my, um, uh, you know, collaborators on this, the co producers, that, you know, we need to take this thematically. Okay, we want to obviously go beyond the stereotypes, beyond the sort of standard education that many people received in Greek school. Uh, I mean, Greek school in you know, thrown in other parts of the Greek diaspora, but it also wanted to treat this as a, you know, to make people think about, you know, beyond, you know, being proud of being Greek, you know, as, as I read recently, you know, if you're, um, if you're studying history, you know, people sometimes feel upset, you know, they might feel good about, you know, humanity as a whole, they might feel angry, but if the only thing they feel is, is pride, then they're probably not studying history. And, I think it was important mm. that you know this idea of Greece. Uh, where, how how does it become the Greece we understand today? And I think really, you know, beyond the ancient Greek, you know, glory and um, and civilization. I mean, really, the Greece we recognize today starts uh, in the eighteen twenties. When it comes though, to Republican ideas, and I don't want to you know uh, take us away from the anniversary, so to speak, but when it, when it comes to you know, this is a really a new political community, you know, a republican one. That's how it starts, but it becomes a monarchy for, you know, for reasons that we should not go into hmm. now. But really, the the outcome of the French Revolution sort of touches the shores of Greek, uh, of the Greek world, so to speak, uh, in the Ionian Islands in 1797. You know, this is where I would say this is where the the predecessor of the Greek Revolution starts because that's when. We call them in Greek, Demokratiki Galli, but really the, the English term and the sort of French is Republican. Um, and the idea of a republic is very powerful. So I think that's what the meaning, uh, of a revolution is also, uh, today. It's also interesting that there was this, you know, public history approach at the time when I think there's almost an explosion of, you know, digital events and, um, items of the revolution, when it's, when it's uh, digitization of sources or uh, now, of course, during the pandemic, you know, talks on uh, on the web uh, live or recorded. And uh, I think we, th- this podcast was a great team effort, first of all, that, you know, it was the result of many people working uh, behind the scenes, uh, so to speak. Um, and we're, you know, as you said, try to address uh, the interests of um, a younger generation, but actually now with the, you know, explosion of, uh, of web connectivity i think it actually uh, addresses the interests of uh, an older generation uh, as well so it was great experience uh, it was challenging oftentimes but i think it, it's uh, it's worked well well it was excellent work
0: sakis and i, I know there's uh, more episodes coming so we'll let you get back to uh, preparing for them Thanks thank you very much. much for your time thank you very much
1: thank you so much
0: Professor Sakis Gekas from York University in Canada, filling us in on 1821 and its legacy, not just for Greece, but the rest of the world as well. Don't forget that in association with the Hellenic Heritage Foundation, Sakis is involved in a podcast dedicated to the Greek War of Independence. It's called The Idea of Greece. Great name, I think. Do check it out.
1: I feel like I have a much better grasp on both the timeline of the war, but also how the Greek Revolution connects with other world events after listening to Psychis and his podcast.
0: Yeah, he provided some excellent perspective on there with his uh, guests as well. So uh, really uh, do check it out. And I guess perspective is at the heart of the second part of today's podcast.
1: You've been speaking to our former editor, Nikos Kostandaras, who's a columnist at the Greek daily Kathimerini, and who hired us both a long, long time ago.
0: Decisions I'm sure he never came to regret, Phoebe. <laughs> you know, uh, b- back in the day when we were at the newspaper, we'd often have existential discussions in Nikos' office about Greece. And in fact, we, we continue the uh, discussions to this uh, day. And I wanted to marry that with the anniversary of 1821, which is a period in Greek history that I know Nico has studied with uh, great interest. Uh, and the aim really was to fuel the discussion on how far Greece has come and where it might be going next.
1: That sounds like a very philosophical concoction.
0: Well, I had the uh, absolute confidence that Nico could uh, pull it off. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't have embarked on uh, this uh, little adventure. I started off by asking him whether he could pick up on any important themes or tendencies that have been prevalent throughout Greece's history since 1821, even until this very day.
3: The repeated tendency is uh, the wars that have taken place and the civil wars and the bankruptcies, uh, which we've seen in cycles. We rise and we fall, sometimes on our own and sometimes on account of foreign uh, developments and invasions and so on. But I think the most important thing that has been uh, there throughout has been this dependence, a dependence on, uh, on foreign powers and a dependence on um, on foreign circumstances for things to to go well, and we've seen it right from the very beginning, from the the movement towards the um, the war of liberation, the the momentum that was built up was not completely uh, internal; it had a lot of input from uh, from foreign agents uh, in terms of world developments, but also in terms of, uh, of those who did play a role in, uh, in, in the Greek War of Independence, the great powers. Uh, so we had the great power involvement right from the very beginning, which at that time was, uh, as we know, Britain, France and, uh, and Russia. Uh, but we've had that all the way through, with the most recent uh, example of this being our um, willing and uh, very happy participation in the European Union but in the meantime there's always been a very strong uh foreign uh um, element to our politics and that has has has, has led to an important uh, characteristic of our um, of, of our politics is that they even while they are very um domestically inclined we everything has a domestic um angle and even our foreign policy is uh is most often uh, designed to to play to a, a domestic audience. Uh, we also use foreign agents uh, to play in our politics all the time, uh, against each other and sometimes for the national cause, but more often uh, different, different parties are trying to make an impression abroad so that they can gain points at home. And this is something that we've seen right through from the very beginning. It has helped Greece make progress, but it's also kept its politics in a very uh, confrontational mode.
0: In terms of that looking uh, abroad and what kind of influence that can bring into the domestic uh, situation, there there also seems to have been, just as there was in uh, 1821, throughout Greece's history, this kind of looking to either foreigners or to Greeks abroad to see what they can bring to to the game. And that's something that hasn't uh, disappeared. It's still very much part of uh, what's going on at the moment. I mean, we're in a situation now where we're talking about how can we, you know, the, the, the people, the young Greeks, during the crisis left, during the brain drain, how can we bring them, bring them back? How can they become players in Greece today? Which is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying that it's, it's a common theme. Right.
3: And the, 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 that is the common theme and the common answer, which is always uh, stated but has never been worked out, is that if we make Greece a place that people want to stay in and work in and invest their lives and their time and their uh, future in, uh, then people will not leave and those who have left will come back. So it's not so much a a point of getting those who've left to come back, it's of making the place good for those who are here, then those who have left will come back. And that is something that's been uh, evident right through uh, the history of Greece do you think perhaps this
0: sort of looking outside of greece for some kind of influence or sort of beneficial effects hints at some kind of lack of confidence self confidence within within greece or don't you think that's part of the
3: equation I that's a good point but the moment you said it I thought that maybe it's the opposite maybe it's overconfidence in the fact that mm-hmm. we think that our uh, influence spreads outside of Greece to such an extent that uh, everything outside of Greece is part of what's in Greece
0: the center of the world is Exactly uh, Delphi was the I center suppose. of the
3: world and you know I'm at the center of the center of the world yeah. <laughs> look there is an understanding that greece is very small and it always was and it was a weak nation that was setting out to um to free itself and it is, it was a very difficult uh, task that, that 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 was set for it um and of course it wouldn't have functioned it wouldn't have worked it wouldn't have succeeded if uh, it didn't have foreign uh, influence w- whether in terms of uh, of help uh, at the great power level or of the people coming and fighting here for the Greek cause or for sending money. Um, but even beyond that was the intellectual uh, framework of the, um, of the war of liberation, which uh, w- most probably would not have uh, been successful if there wasn't this concept that the Greeks were the heirs of the ancient Greeks, and what they were trying to do was free themselves of foreign influence and resume this... Uh, this march uh, of glory that uh, had existed in the past. So, th- this was very much a, 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 an external uh, idea. I mean, the the people in, in Western Europe who, who were enthusiastic about the Greek War of Independence had that in mind. And that was very favorable to the Greeks, and they were c- clever enough to pick up on it and uh, gradually you make it the, the, their flag. I mean, we can understand the people wanted to be free. Uh, nobody wants to be under foreign uh, uh, influence and under foreign occupation, but the, it was very difficult for them to fight until they had an idea of who they were and what they would be fighting for. And as we know, there were very many different groups of of, of people who were fighting for for their freedom. So the one unifying factor was r- freeing the Greeks uh, who had their uh, destiny interrupted. It was much easier than to say, you know, we're just various groups of uh, different interests um, trying to free themselves. So the foreign influence was very great there. Then there was the fact that the foreign uh, navies actually saved Greece when the, the when the war was lost at the Battle of Navarino, which was a massive uh, event um, for all involved. Um, quite an embarrassment for those who actually won the, the battle, but still it, it worked very much to the Greeks' favor. Um, and that, that was also the, the sort of sign that everything here was, uh, was influenced by, by foreign forces. And then we had the first political parties, which reflected the foreign, uh, the great powers. So domestic politics were completely tied up with, uh, with with foreign influence, whether we imagined it or not. Um, we had these divisions, and that kept on all the time because it worked. You know, it, it could help um, uh, gain influence within the country by being the agent of a foreign power, and so we used it for domestic. We, when I say we, I mean the Greek, uh, the Greeks of the That's time. Right? uh we very want to do that and uh, what the foreign powers found was that uh, that was the greatest uh, thing that the Greeks were interested in was gaining the the foreigner's ear by um denigrating each other continually and and that created a pattern which uh is pretty much uh with us still yeah no it's kind of
0: reminiscent of um the economic crisis. I'll go back to again when the troika was coming to town, and the opposition was uh, telling, t- telling, going and telling to uh, the uh, foreign creditors all the bad things that the, the government was supposed to be doing. Whichever way around, uh, the government and the opposition were.
3: Exactly. This has played a role in uh, in the European Union. I don't know. I don't know if this is the same case with other with other countries. But observing this, you're all the, all this time. Um, first of all, there's a sense that uh, we the Greek parties tend to believe that if they uh, if they rat out each other to the to the Europeans, they gain some points uh, mm-hmm. instead of seeing that what they're doing is actually sinking the um, the national um, effort. Of course, yeah. right. Uh, and we had uh, a very good uh, in, uh, case of this when, in 2004, the New Democracy government went to the European Union and claimed that uh, the figures of the previous government had been uh, had been fixed, the so-called apographie.
0: right?
3: Yeah, uh, the audit of put, the yeah. audit, which put everybody in a spot. Uh, and then we've we've had the same thing happening over and over. We also had this thing of. Uh, the European uh, mechanisms not being very strict on, gov- on Greek governments because the Greek government will always say, you know, if we fall, these guys are going to come into power, and you don't want to see that, do you? So we had lax um, uh, audits uh, on things because politics played a role there. Uh, so th- th- this, is, this has always been there, and it's been, it has helped Greece very much because. The um, the fact that Greece has been on the right side in uh, in major international conflicts has worked to its benefit. I mean, Greece has fought very hard and has made many sacrifices, but has also been on the right side. It could have fought hard and made sacrifices and been on the wrong side. So uh, that has worked uh, to its benefit very much.
0: Nico, away from the foreign elements, you know, looking at the kind of these threads that you can trace back to this period, the Greek uh, revolution. One of these interesting nuggets I found is sort of brushing up on the history recently in reading um, uh, David Brewer's book, The Greek War of Independence. He he writes about um, the English philosopher Jeremy Bentham writing to the fledgling Greek government with comments on the first constitution, which he generally welcomed and he tried to give Constructive feedback. And one of the things that made me laugh was that he flagged up the proliferation of ministers, which he found completely counterproductive. And Brewer also references a comment from Bishop uh, Ignatius at the time, also complaining about the number of ministers that were in this sort of, uh, 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 prototype uh, government and there was a fantastic quote he 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 included from bishop ignatius who said that even second class kings have only two or three ministers complaining about this you know, everyone trying to get a, a a position and i say that made me laugh because uh you know for years in greece we hear a government come in a new prime minister come in and talk about the so-called small and flexible Structure of government that he's going to bring in, and would you wouldn't you know it within a few months we're talking about a cabinet with more than forty people in it. um what, What's this all about? Why why is there this need to to uh, put cram so many people into positions of power? uh
3: Positions of semi power, <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, maybe that's the the reason behind it. Yeah, no, no one has true authority that way.
3: Exactly, uh, and it keeps if it keeps them quiet, then it'll keep uh, things together. A big problem of of Greece, which began from the very beginning from the War of Independence, was the lack of a central authority, of a strong of a strong organizing power, um, and that is something that has played a huge role in 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 the in the shaping of Greek political behavior, uh, I believe, because there wasn't a, a set central authority that would be all-powerful and had to be obeyed and would impose its order on things. So you had the various groups all agitating all the time, and at the same time, um, this dependence on foreign uh, influence, foreign input, um, created a, a kind of confusion of authority so there wasn't one set authority that would say this is what we have this is what we're going to work with so what w- was happening all the time is you either were at, you either had the central authority at war with factions or you had all the factions inside and you were giving them all something to keep them to keep them quiet up to a point that works up to a point because they're always ready to agitate for more so the moment that the, the central authority was weaker or had any kind of problem, things got out of control. And we saw that right from the very, very beginning from um, the fact that uh, the, the first governor who was elected, elected chosen, selected uh, for a republican form of, of, of government, a, pres, a presidential one, he was assassinated. And then the Greeks begged for a king and then when they got the king uh he was a foreigner and his his uh, religion was not the the orthodox one and there was the influence coming in from russia which was then orthodox which was orthodox which helped undermine this whole thing so you you had a king that the greeks asked for the greeks were happy to get him and the moment they had him they could begin undermining him because he was not the absolute authority for a number of reasons this is something that has been repeated over and over um so uh it it this creates a a a political scene where uh people question all the time which is good in terms of citizenship and intellectual ferment and so on but it also doesn't help to have strong uh, and effective government and the the more you are without strong and effective government the more you question the kind of government you have so you always have this questioning and the more that uh, the more democratic the system becomes in terms of electoral laws and so on, which might have simple proportional representation or and not the bonuses that we have had until now recently, uh, you get a lot of instability because there isn't uh, any kind of um, institutional framework for a, for a strong government. So you'll have very big cabinets with uh, with with power diluted all over the place with uh, with, uh, with uh, spots that you don't see into, and so on, which is uh, which, which is very bad for for government and for transparency, and you know leads to corruption, confusion, and uh, uh, mismanagement. Okay, Nico, let, let's try and pick up some of the
0: positives Be, beyond casting off the Ottoman yoke and the founding of the Greek state. What, in your opinion, are the most
3: significant? Positive legacies of the revolution. Freedom, freedom is a uh, is a wonderful thing, and uh, any country that becomes free is um, is is a boon. Not only to its own people, but to to the region and to and to the world. Uh, so Greece has been free. Greece has had a lot of problems, uh, as we've seen right through its uh, its history. But the fact that this is a group of people who are very often, do reach the potential individually, whether inside Greece or outside of Greece, is important. Uh, the the the, war of, the Greek War of Liberation was important in that it was the the first successful one, which resulted in a nation state coming out of the um, the breakup of a, of an empire, uh, which um, is a positive uh, thing, even in the short uh, from the short term to the long term. Evidently, it, wor- it worked very well there. Um, it it allowed the um, what can I say? It it, it sort of a- allowed the Greeks to be free citizens of the world because they were everywhere and uh, they kept traveling everywhere, and that has been good for Greece, having a, a diaspora that has been successful everywhere, and that diaspora has also been good for the countries that they have that they have established themselves in the its its members um i can't say that the intellectual ferment has been such that it's seeded uh, anything uh new in the world but it's been a very receptive um uh, country for for new ideas and for new uh for new thoughts on 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 politics and stuff it, i mean its politics might be mired in very old style client patron uh, relationships still but it's uh Politics in the broader sense of having a liberal outlook on society uh, is, is interesting, uh, and it's, it's also very positive. And it's also positive that the Greeks have been a mix of West and East, which is uh, something that I think could still play a role that it hasn't played yet. Uh, in, in, from the beginning, from the revolution, where you had Enlightenment ideas and the idea of revolution uh, being the seed, for the revolt but at the same time the revolt not being able to succeed if it didn't Im- include the the people who had no idea about uh, Voltaire and uh, Locke and uh, yeah uh, and so on um, who, who put the, the blood and the time and the sa- made the sacrifices to win um, while having a religious sense of themselves all of these things together I think were, are a very um, fruitful. Uh, area to look at in terms of combining um, the, the rational thought of the West with the um, sense of belonging to something more ecumenical, which you get from the Eastern side of the Greek—I um, um, won't say upbringing, but background. Uh, these things are have been have been useful. They've also been very. Um, damaging at times when, you've, when there's a lot of tension between the two sides. But uh, it also has, has shown that when there is a synthesis of, of intellect plus passion, as we saw in, in the Second World War, for example, um, and in many, many other areas where the Greeks just got down and worked hard to get mm-hmm. things done, uh, that it, that's, it, it's a very interesting mix yeah, And that Greece is like an interesting place to follow, to watch that.
0: Sticking with the theme of achievements, the Centre for Liberal Studies here in Athens recently conducted an opinion poll about Greeks' perception of 1821. Uh, and I think it's the second time they ran the poll. They ran it again last year. One of the questions that uh, asked... Um, Respondents to identify Greece's greatest achievement since the War of Independence. And they were obviously given a a menu of uh, choices rather than a free choice. The most popular response with 11.6% was joining the European Union. Were you surprised by this? Uh, And I, I know that we're talking about a big period, 200 years, but what would perhaps you pick out as a highlight or highlights?
3: I would definitely pick that out. I'm uh, very happy and very almost surprised that uh, it was the the, the lead um, answer, which made me very happy when I saw it, because the the European Union is is the Greek dream. I mean, the Greeks would have to make something like this themselves if it didn't exist. It is a, the only thing that can save Greeks and and, and Greece. Uh, and it is how they functioned in the past. I mean, uh, look under the um, under the Ottomans. Once they got their footing, there were many successful Greeks, both in the uh, administration and in uh, commerce and uh, and trade. Once they got the opportunities, which was much later, of course, um, the Greeks can can function in a big system, and the European Union is the most wonderful of the big systems because. Each nation is a willing participant in it. They are equal. Uh, they have the opportunities to expand. They have the op- opportunities to bring in people. and for Greece, the big problem is that it's a very small country uh, with small with a small uh, number of people who are gro- who are growing fewer each year. and by and in the next few de- decades that will be very evident. Uh, its economy cannot compete on its own, so it can only be part of a bigger um, unit. Uh, But more importantly is the need that every Greek feels for stability and security and for the rule of law. This is the big, big, big uh, yearning of the Greeks is the rule of law. Uh, And it has been since before the revolution. I mean, there was this idea that uh, the revolution would help the, the Greek people run themselves according to the law. Now that has not happened a hundred percent, but it has not stopped uh being uh, the, the the thing that people want. So the European Union has helped very much in putting rules in place. Uh on the one hand, it has allowed us allowed the Greeks to get away with not putting their country into uh uh into order completely. But, uh, but, it, but it, it helps that people have recourse to the European uh, Court of Human Rights, that they have the European standards to live up to, that the, that the European uh, Commission uh, imposes fines on uh, destruction of the environment and so on. Um, but more than that is the fact that Greeks feel that they, their children mainly have a hinterland, have an area to grow into, that they, they go into any country in Europe and they can blossom which they cannot do in Greece most of the time, uh, that, that, that the rule of law and meritocracy and accountability and all of these things that the Greeks want but don't have in Greece, they're there in the European Union. And I think that that is even more important than the idea of being part of a big family which will keep the bullies at bay. Uh, is the sense there, There's the sense that the, the Greeks in Europe can be what they could, can be, and which their own country doesn't allow them a lot of the time.
0: You know, I I was looking at this question, and obviously it's it's a very difficult one to to answer, and to even in two hundred years, Greece has had a very sort of rich and um action packed uh, history, if you like. But the, the thing that came to my mind, and obviously it would never be a choice on a on a poll like this because it's not very definitive, and it's probably not a very let's say attractive response, is that perhaps the greatest achievement is surviving you know still being here 200 years later still still standing um if you know if you look at this period of uh, history that uh how many blows Greece has suffered many of them self-inflicted but o- obviously uh, we're talking about uh, wars and safi- uh, famines, and uh, occupation, and uh, civil wars, and uh, dictatorships, and uh, uh, the Asia Minor catastrophe, and e- everything that's gone on. Um, the fact that you're still standing and, to some extent, thriving—okay, the, the economically things have been difficult recently—is quite an achievement.
3: It is. It, it it is for 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 such a small nation it is and in such a difficult uh, neighborhood i mean think yep. if if we didn't have the the need to spend so much on defense uh and spending on defense is you know it's one it's one thing to say it but the other is the whole uh world that is created around such heavy defense spending i mean there's the the, the, the corruption that this breeds, there's the inefficiency <laughs> that this breeds, the excuse for not doing other things because we have such an important, uh, uh, thing on our hands, which is our defense and so on. I think that that, that has played a huge role, uh, in, 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 and in a lot of the problems that, that, that Greece has faced in, in its 200 years. As you said, a lot of it is, uh, um, is of our own uh, making. The interesting thing is the foreign factor again. The foreign factor has worked very positively very often, as much as it's also been a, a problem uh, for various reasons. First of all, by making our politics very distorted. Second, by the Greeks very often uh, 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 being played uh, as an instrument by by others. Um, but there's, there's just the thing of the foreign intervention. You mentioned the Troika earlier. And uh, I, I remember the the disastrous war of 1897 where the Greeks really went picking a fight with the, the Turks and they got run over after that. Uh, and they were very lucky not to lose territory but had to pay huge reparations. And that was the first time that we found ourselves under a troika. It wasn't called the Troika then, of course, but it was the yeah. International Financial Commission, which was really uh, a humiliation having some... Foreign agency run run your economy. At the same time, though, it got the economy into line to such an extent that very few years later, the Greeks were all over the Balkans, you know, doubling doubling their territory because mm-hmm. uh, they got themselves vaguely organized. Um, so you know, the, the the foreign influence has been a, a, a very interesting factor uh, in this, and it's played a, a huge role in the. What can I say? Development, uh, growth. Yes. Uh, the the interesting thing that I want to mention here as well is that this kind of dependence creates a strange kind of uh, mentality in a country. The one hand, we take it for granted that they, we're going to be bailed out or someone is going inter- to intervene. Uh, it's almost as if it's you know we can be a little more reckless or a little um, uh, more demanding um, because. We don't have to rely purely on our own uh, forces. Then if we do make a mistake, we can blame others for that mistake. The best of both it, worlds. It is the best of both world <laughs> worlds. the difference that we have to live with the consequences. Whoever. Yeah, you pay the price afterwards, yeah. yeah whoever you blame. <laughs> um, but what we get is a sense of dependence, which is almost willing dependence, but at the same time there's a kind of anger at this dependence. Why should we be dependent? So you got you got this very um, what can I say double-edged uh, uh, way of looking at your uh, at, at the foreign influence. We need it, and we often com- sometimes we complain because we don't want that, and sometimes we complain because we don't get enough of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that 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 has distorted the Greek political uh, system very much, and we saw that very much in terms of of the, our European Union uh, membership in at the beginning, um, instead of preparing for, what the, for the rigors of European Union membership, we were very happy to take the money and spread it around um, to, all, to all parts of, of, of Greek society, which was very good that it happened because until that time the, the Greek uh, peasants and the, and the working-class people had had a very, very rough time uh, through yeah. their history, but the th- the thing is that the the money that could have been spent preparing the country for the future was not spent on that it was spent on buying social um uh social tranquility, which it did of course
0: Michael, speaking of the European Union and also linking it back to something you said earlier about uh, Greece being sort of bridging the east and west um Since the War of Independence, Greece has grappled with this existential question, if you like, of where it belongs in the East or the West. And famously, in 1976, the late Greek Prime Minister Kostadinos Karamanlis, who later actually oversaw accession to what was then the European Economic Community, argued that in, and this is quoting him, in political, defence, economic and cultural terms, Greece belonged to the West. Now, to all intents and purposes, the debate seems settled once Greece joined the EC or the EU as we call it now, but we saw it rekindled somewhat during the economic crisis over the last decade. Are our hearts and minds completely made up on
3: this issue? Uh,
0: how do you think Greeks look upon themselves and their country in this respect?
3: I think the Greeks see themselves as 100% uh, Western uh what do we see whenever they we, we see this kind of questioning uh, of alignment is not so much uh decision to go east uh, and it I, I don't think it even touches on the Eastern aspects that we might have in our character from our uh, understanding of divinity to our music to our to our cooking um it's it's not that it's it what what I see is, the very Greek and at the same time Western rational choice to try play powers against each other to to achieve our own ends. Um, so when we were seen as veering towards uh, Russia during the crisis, the last crisis that we had, it wasn't because we wanted to go to Russia and send our children to study in Russia and uh, and do anything that would make us Russian. Uh, it was to see if the Russians could help us get away with what uh, we were getting away with up to now, which is a very rational thought, if you come <laughs> to think of it. The East, when we talk uh, of, is an affinity and understanding of of, of of nations that are to our East. And I think there is, there is a sense of that. I think... Uh, a, I as a Greek could feel very comfortable with uh with with, with people from the middle east from turkey mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um from elsewhere that uh might excite me a little more than someone from western europe who gets on well with with those people not because my friendship will be stronger but maybe my sense of identity will be stronger right w- w- with those people which might be uh, you know a, a personal myth that I have, but also the, there's a sense that you you can understand um, things that are not completely um, westernized. But I think in the, in the sense of where we belong and where we want to belong and what we aim to achieve and where the bar is for us to to reach, it's all west. Okay,
0: Nicole, Finally, let's try to cast the conversation forward as Greece looks to put the economic crisis of the previous decade and the current COVID crisis behind it. What should be the goals for the coming years, do you think? Where do you see encouraging signs and what worries you most about the direction things are going in?
3: The encouraging uh, things that I see were actually provoked by the uh, pandemic. Uh, And a lot of that is focused on the digital transformation that we are seeing. Uh, I had the opinion for years now that Greece is not fixable in terms of getting into uh, the public administration and the judicial system and the tax system and all of these systems that are just created in a way that it's almost like there is an artificial intelligence trying to obstruct anything that can happen. Um, And that artificial intelligence is very much run by human beings. Who look, who look for every place where they can block anything from happening and, or helping somebody or reaching or or having any follow-up or getting any project completed, they will go into like, it's almost like Zeno's paradoxes, they will go infinitely deep into the smallest problem to avoid going on to the next one. Uh, digitally now, suddenly everything is clearer and there is, it's, it's beginning to take shape. So for me, the positive thing is if this begins to create not so much um, a parallel structure as to create a a spine for this amorphous body that is the Greek public administration, judiciary, and so on. And I think that that can help very much if it is not interrupted. Um, And it also, because it's almost headless, it doesn't give the forces of obstruction something to oppose. Um, something specific. It's kind of happening almost against their will. And you can imagine if you're a trade unionist now or a, or someone with undue influence in the judiciary, how you'll be thinking about uh, how you're going to get away with what you're getting away with now when things become electronic. Okay, so that's the one thing. The, the other thing that worries me, but, but the thing that worries me is this incredible tendency to turn every dispute into uh, fratricidal uh, conflict. Uh, and I say that because today the Greeks, for me, are more united than they've ever been in the terms of who they are, in terms of the, the society, in terms of uh, viewpoints. I mean, this is a liberal society with a lot of traditional uh, ideas, but it is a liberal society. I mean, the, the church is part of our identity very strongly, if you ask us in polls, but our every in our everyday um, Functioning. We don't pay attention to the church, whether we're talking about major issues like abortion or uh, fasting or whatever. We're very in, uh, we very, you know, it it's there, but we go our own way, and everybody's happy with that. Why I'm saying that is that the big issues that divided the Greeks are not here anymore. Left and right is not significant. State and liberalism is not significant. What we want is effective state, not. Uh, smaller or bigger or whatever, so that's that's the moot point. Uh, the identity is is pretty much what it is, uh, and there's no division. So I find it extraordinary that for non-existent issues there is so much passion and so much hatred in the in the public debate. It's like you know, for for the slightest difference we can uh, spew incredible amounts of uh, vitriol. At each other, and that is that that for me is a very disturbing sign, which might be past you know something transient, but it also might be something that will keep getting worse as time goes on if things if 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 the international circumstances remain very demanding that's my worry is what we do to each other within our society
0: look, i think that we've we've all identified bright spots for the future, but also things to look out for um where potentially things could go wrong thank you very much for a broad and fascinating discussion and for your time
3: thank you
1: so great to hear his voice again that was Nikos Kostandairas columnist at Kathimerini again some Great
0: insight from Nikos, as well as much to contemplate about as Greece celebrates 200 years since the War of Independence, but also looks to its future.
1: And that brings us to the end of this special edition of the Agora. And
0: there hasn't been a traditional dress or antique armament in sight, Phoebe.
1: (laughs) Only a burst of revolutionary song. Yeah, well, that's okay. I'll I'll allow that. (laughs) Before we go, remember, the Agora is brought to you by Macropolis, and you can find us on Acast, Apple, Spotify, and Google. Please subscribe and rate us. We welcome any and all feedback.
0: And you can find out more about Macropolis at www.macropolis.gr. That's Macropolis with a C. And Phoebe, just to show that I'm not a killjoy, I'll allow you to give the song we heard at the start of the show, One More Spin.
1: My goodness, you've been swept up by the revolutionary spirit. (laughs) Well, it is known to grab me from time to time. Well, here you go then, just for you. Performed by the late, great Cretan singer and composer Nikos Xylouris, in honor of the 200 years since the Greek War of Independence, we'll finish with a burst of Thurios, the patriotic hymn encouraging enslaved Greeks to rise up written in 1797 by one of the revolution's spiritual fathers, Rigues Ferreos, who was strangled to death and whose body was thrown into the Danube River as a warning to other would-be Balkan revolutionaries. That's how dangerous his ideas were considered by the Ottoman Empire. You know, Nico, I think I need to continue to research this subject, and, and maybe we should write a screenplay? I, I don't know.
0: Yep, well it would it's a terrific story
1: definitely. There's there's plenty of
0: material there.
1: I am going to go ponder now on that screenplay and we're going to get back to you very soon with another episode of The Agora.
0: Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>
2: Παλικάρια θα στα στενά, μονάχαι σαν λιωτάρια, στες στα βουνά. Ως τότε παλικάρια θα ζούμε στα στενά, μονάχαι σαν λιωτάρια, στες ράχε στα βουνά. Κάθε μια ώρας, ελεύθερη ζωή. Παρασάρατα
3: χρόνους, κλαδιά και φύλακή. Παρασάρατα φρόνους σκλαβιά και φύλακή.